The following is presented by Lanier Technical College, Concept One Pulley Systems, and Year One Classic Muscle Car Restoration Parts. Hit it! Hang on, you're now part of the fastest podcast on the planet, Bud's Garage Overdrive. Produced in the studios of Jacobs Media, located in beautiful downtown Gainesville, Georgia. On today's show, kill switches and new cars, EV batteries in cold weather, and an ongoing automotive mystery thriller. Plus, a visit from NASCAR Winston Cup champion team member Dan Elliott. NASCAR championships don't come easy. Plus, even more informative automotive buffoonery with Bud and Tim. Let's kick it in overdrive. Welcome in, folks. This is Bud Hughes, resident car nut, and Tim Tupasquale, upholsterer to the stars. Tim, how you doing, man? I'm great, Bud. Well, we're not a political show, but <laughs> yeah. while you and I were getting ready for Christmas, mm-hmm. and everybody else were making plans for Christmas, our employees, our employees in Washington, D.C., were cramming an infrastructure bill that they hadn't read through Congress. Yeah. You couldn't possibly read it. It was too many pages. It was like 4,000 yeah. pages. Yeah. No, 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 you, I'm, there's statistics on how much we can read in a in an hour, and it would have taken you. Oh, right. You know, right. I can Four weeks to read the thing. I can barely focus on a caption anymore. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm still with, I'm still <laughs> looking at the pictures. All right. <laughs> According to an article written by former Representative Bob Barr, part of that bill was a law requiring kill switches on new cars. And that is very dangerous. Well, your, your present car already has a lot of this stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Um, that if, if the, something goes wrong with the car and the car senses it, it can put your car into limp home mode. Right. Um, and, you know, to prevent you from doing damage to your car. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can use your black box uh, in a, a court of law uh, if you're in an accident. Right. And, uh, so there's, you know, the insurance companies can use it. The authorities can use it. And there are devices that car dealers put on certain cars, uh, oh yeah, and that they can keep track of. And sure. uh, you know, so a lot of this, a lot of this stuff is already out here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now the article didn't mention big rigs, but big no. rig drivers have to go through, you know, some some hoops uh, because their trucks will shut down if they drive too right. many hours. In that right, country, with right? the ELD. Okay? Right. Well, what they're talking about, and of course, you know. Um, uh, it, it sounds like a good idea and concept. Mm-hmm. You know, you're chasing the bad guys, and the police can flip yeah, a switch flip a and switch your car shuts off. Shut off, right. Well, right, right. that's okay, I guess, if you're chasing the bad guys. Mm-hmm. But if you're driving down the road and um, somebody decides to shut your car off, it can cause a catastrophic accident. Exactly. And let me tell you how I know. Tell me. We had a vehicle. I won't name names right now, but we had a vehicle mm-hmm. that the air pedal in your you know, in the cabin, mm-hmm. we used to call it a gas pedal. Gas it hasn't pedal. been a gas pedal for 15 years. Right. But the air pedal in your car is connected to the throttle body, which is the part that makes the car accelerate, mm-hmm. lets air in, and then based on how much air is coming on the fuel injectors, put fuel in the engine, et cetera, et cetera. But the system we had in this particular vehicle was wireless. So there's no physical connection between your foot and the engine. Oh, no. And that's the way most cars are now. Right. Especially your front-wheel drive stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, because it's so much easier to package if you don't have to mess with the cables. Oh, stuff. sure. So, it was Jan's car. She's driving along. She said, my car shut off the day when I was driving. I said, what? And uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't get it to do it. I took it out, and I, I couldn't get it to mm-hmm. do it. So, I'm going down a highway yeah. at 75 miles an hour, and the car went to idle. 
Now, I kind of sort of expected it because she had mentioned the car was doing something funky. So I got off the road and out of the way. But if, you know, if you were in, in traffic where it was bumper to bumper. Yeah. And you're going 70 in the car. It didn't right. shut off, but it went to idle. Now I'll get to that in a minute. So, you know, it's, it's a very dangerous thing because oh, sure. all of a sudden, you, you know, your, your speed decreases. And so I got it off the side of the road and, and shut it off, turned it on. It recycled itself and it drove fine. Well, I found out later that it was a common problem with the vehicle, but there hadn't been enough of them to order a recall yet. Mm-hmm. So I replaced the, the defective part or the suspected defective part. I replaced it and I hung on to it. Six months later, they put out a recall on it. So I took it in and got my money for, you know, okay. buying the part. Yeah. But what they're talking about here is shutting the car off. Right. Here's, here's the difference. When, when the car would go to idle, you still had brakes, you still had steering, because the engine was still running. Exactly. Here they're talking about shutting the car off. Shutting it off. off. So you, you lose control. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden your, your nice, easy power steering goes to manual steering, and uh, things go wrong in a big hurry. Right. And they think this is a good idea. Yeah. So there's going to be, and they're, they're talking, it's probably going to take five years to get this to happen. Mm-hmm. But they want to do it to, to all new cars, and then they want to come back and do it to, you know, hot rods and everything else. Have really? to have some kind of system on them to shut them off. We're getting just a little bit too much concerned about yeah. controlling things. Exactly. Exactly. But it's in the bill, and it's passed. So mm. or, or it's been signed in the law for what it's worth. For what it's worth. I mean, there's all kinds. That opens the door for hackers Absolutely. coming in the back door. Yep. I mean, there's... Yeah. What was that book that we read? Remember we interviewed that author? I got I to find, find that. That that author was on Bill Main's show, and I got to find that. That was that was a fascinating book. Oh, yeah. Because the cars were all controlled, you know, remotely, mm-hmm. and you didn't even see what was out in front of the car. You were in a, you were in a cocoon were in a, capsule oh. or something. Whoa, that's Weird. freaky. Well, what was uh, Orson Welles' book, 1984? Yeah. George Orwell. George Orwell. I'm sorry, what did I say, Orson Welles? Well, that was close. Yeah. George Orwell. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> one, of those, one of those guys. Now, we got through 1984. But yeah, but it's, it's, it's weird stuff. And, yeah. uh, so many complications going on. Well. Well, we've had some cool weather here in the South and everywhere else, basically. Oh, yeah. And uh, we found out that EV batteries are affected by cold temperatures. Really? More than what we even knew? Well, it, it is, uh, it's, kind of, it's kind of funny because I've noticed in, in our little uh, escape plug-in mm-hmm. hybrid, now it's in a garage. I don't always heat the garage that, that uh, the car is in because it stays pretty, you know, pretty warm. Yeah. You know, 40, 50 degrees. Mm-hmm. When we got really, really cold weather, I heated it because I got, you know, a sink in there. Yeah. So we didn't want it to freeze up. But I noticed that, you know, even charging the battery with the 240 charger instead of my the range when you get in the car being 39, uh, 41, or 42 miles, uh-huh. it's dropped down to the mid-30s. Wow. Just from temperature. Just from temperature, isn't that So, something? you know, it's a, it's a 15, 20% drop. Mm-hmm. But there was some, some ugly things on YouTube and, and some of the other media sources about Teslas. Right. That were in zero-degree weather. And the drivers would take them to the Tesla supercharger, mm-hmm. and the charger wouldn't charge because it needed to get the batteries up to temperature. And one guy said it took six hours of him sitting in the car at the supercharger station, 
Six hours he camped out in the car before the battery was warm enough to charge it. Isn't that crazy? I think I'd have found Your something. thoughts, Bill? All I know is Rupert started up just fine over that, that period. I had no problems. It may have had the drop in mileage. Yeah. But I had no problems with operation, right. and I was a little concerned about it. Well, you, you, you really needn't be in a hybrid because yeah. you're going to get there in a hybrid. Yeah. You know, but what I was concerned about with a plug-in hybrid is that first 40 miles is strictly on battery if the car is set up that way. You can change that around so, you know, it's not like that. But we just left it as is. You're mm -hmm. 40 miles on the battery, and then the hybrid system kicks in. Yeah. But the Tesla driver doesn't have that option. No. And uh, what they were finding out was... Uh, I guess what, what struck me was these people don't charge their Teslas at home, apparently. Right. Well, maybe they don't they're have the They're dependent upon, yeah. They're, they're, yeah, anyway. that's crazy. I noticed that the mileage on my hybrid escape went down to about 42. Usually I can average around 50. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, I'm going to let you start this next bit from the beginning, and then you're going to give us an update on what's going on now. And this is the mystery thriller we know as Carlos Gomez. Tell us about what's going I on with your buddy, Car Carlos Ghosn. Tell us who Carlos Ghosn is. Bring Carlos us up to Ghosn, speed, if you will. Former CEO of Nissan and Renault, who was uh, uh, jailed on trumped-up charges by the Japanese because they didn't like the fact that uh, he pays he income in, tax. Right. And some other things. Yeah. But yeah. at any rate, yeah. he escaped from Japan from house arrest. With the help of these two gentlemen, Americans, Michael Taylor, a 62-year-old former Green Beret, and his son, Peter Taylor. And how did they escape? They put him into a music box container that you carry musical equipment in and put him on a private jet. Uh, like if you were doing concerts, you'd right. put your stuff in this, this yeah. big box. And then yeah. flew him to Turkey and then got on another jet and then flew him to... Uh, Beirut, where uh, there's no extradition, and they cannot uh, extradite Carlos Ghosn, although they continually look for ways to kidnap him, to bring him back to Japan, because they're embarrassed. They don't care. They, wanted, they just wanted him out of Nissan, and they got that, but now they're embarrassed because he, he got escaped. Away. Yeah. And that's why they jailed everyone who had any connection to the escape. So the Americans were jailed. The Americans were jailed. Michael Taylor got two years in Japanese prison, and his son Peter got uh, 20 months. And But they finally have been released, and they're back in the United States, thank God. So, so when's the movie coming out? I don't there's know. There's got to be a movie I, I, There's got to be a movie about this. Uh, what a great story. You know? <laughs> Uh, well, you've been staying on top of it. I'll give uh, you that. I know. Right, I know. I know. And, you know, they, unfortunately, uh, because of the cost-cutting measures that help these companies to survive, I think they have both become less car than they used to be. But that's just a personal opinion that is, you know, not uh, factual by any means. Factual stuff. No, okay. it's just my opinion about what I see when we are working on these particular vehicles. Okay. Okay, we're doing a car podcast. Yes. We got three guys in the studio, mm -hmm. and neither one of us do a whole lot of worrying about her hair, apparently. No. Aside from, is it there? And, 
right. combing it once there? in a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but there is a whole industry out there of people that take care of hair. Mm-hmm. And you know what you can learn about taking care of hair and skin and things like that? At Lanier Technical College. That is absolutely correct. And for guys like us that uh, have faces <laughs> that were made for radio, Yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk about another program they have. But tell us a little bit about cosmetology, things I never thought about. You know, I, I just go get my hair cut and whoop-de-doo, you know. I know. Who knew that there were You go, there you go and actually, get your, your head polished. I, yeah, exactly. It's the shaving and polishing. and <laughs> Well, this the cosmetology program at Lanier Technical College emphasizes the specialized training in safety, sanitation, state laws, rules, regulations. I had no idea that they had so much on them. Chemistry, anatomy, physiology, for skin, hair, nail diseases and disorders, hair treatments, and manipulations. Wow. Well, whatever that is. I don't know either. But I've, I've, been, I've been to the, the, the lady that cuts my hair. Mm-hmm. I've known her for a long time. She's a great friend. But sometimes I'll go there and the, and the people have tin foil on their head and she's, she's painting different colors. And oh, really? Highlighting is what mm-hmm. it's called. Uh, I don't tinfoil, go there, but yeah. Tinfoil hats? Is that the... well, no, no, I don't know if they're trying to pick up radio stations or something like that. But it's a career uh-huh. the, that you can, you know, it's a lifelong career. You can take it. Oh, in, sure. You, know, it's the, you may have to change if you go from state to state. You may have to do something with your licensing. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it's like being a mechanic. You can, right. you can take your skills with you. And right. it's something you can learn in a year or oh, two. Oh, sure. And they have another part of this. Because, I mean, there's ugly people all over the world. <laughs> Yes, uh, I'm not even going to go there. Uh, and part of this program, you can, you can do the, the cosmetology part, but you can also become an esthetician. Yeah. Uh, what That's somebody that takes care of skin. Nothing to do with math. No, no, no. So you, you, you go on a cruise, mm-hmm. you go to the spa, mm-hmm. and they offer to give you a facial where they defoliate your skin and get the oils out of your skin and all that kind of oh, stuff. Okay. They don't do any actual procedures um, you know, like, uh, what do you call that? They don't Botox touch you? Or things like that. No, well, they touch you. Because I mean, they, cut. No, no, cut. they don't cut you. That's right. They don't cut you. But you could, you know, you could wind up working for a plastic surgeon or, uh, okay. uh, you know, a, a dermatologist's office. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you have clinical esthetician, a waxing specialist, a brow specialist. You could do something with your brows, too. Yeah, I'm sure I could. You know, the, the black paint, <laughs> it's just not the same same thing. But anyway, if you're interested in this type of career, and it is a career, that's what we need to emphasize about mm-hmm. Lanier Technical College. They train you for a career. Right. And uh, you can reach out to them at LanierTechnicalCollege.net and find out more about cosmetology, esthetician, yeah. or all the other great programs they have, which we will tell you more about in future podcasts. I can't wait to hear. All right, LanierTechnicalCollege.net. Well, one of the best things about doing Bud's Garage Overdrive, the podcast, is being able to reach out to local folks, national folks, unfiltered, and find out their expertise about a particular subject and just rock on with it. Right. So today, we have got a member of the Elliott Brothers racing team, uh, Definitely a championship winner back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he has told me that he's the best looking of the brothers. So we'll we'll just we'll just start with that. <laughs> we want to welcome into the podcast, awesome Dan from Dawsonville. How you doing today? Doing, hey Dan, doing great. How are y'all doing today? Good. This is such a thrill. You know, I, I had a chance when I was you know when we first moved here to come up to the shop and tour it, and I brought my high school students up there. And either you would show them around or uh, Martha would show them around. Uh, Dan Palmer would sometimes show them around. 
and you know the folks were so good to us back then and we developed a relationship later on as i got into lanier tech and stuff like that you came over and we got a chance to work together talk together became friends been through some things together that you know touches both personally and uh it's it's just great to have you sit here and tell us a little bit about where you came from and where it's at now because i know you have some strong feelings about it so let me just shoot off the first question i want to welcome you in and ask you back in the day three brothers in the 50s and 60s living under the same roof in the little house next to your present shop tell us a little bit about all of that you know you you've got to go back probably to mom and dad and um you look at what they basically came from nothing because mother and dad both came through the depression so you you've got a family as were so many families around here that that grew up with nothing had nothing daddy went into the service and he credited that for changing his life because of the opportunities that were not available anywhere around here that he got to do by being in the military because daddy was in the navy retired a full commander in the navy so so very proud of that fact but the education that he he put himself in position to get one of the best educations because the military provided for a lot of that during the time that he was in service so what were the things that he that he studied that that you know later came into playing uh you know part of the race team most of his majors as you'd want to call it would be in in business because daddy worked for burroughs corporation the corporation that did the the ad machines and and so mm-hmm. forth okay. and, yeah. and uh, he worked for burroughs for a while but uh daddy was somebody made the comment one time at the racetrack um who do you know that is a visionary and growing up bud do you have anyone in your life that you considered a visionary that you were actually around because the comment was made was who do you think is is a visionary and and uh, probably one that that everyone would know and they talked about john kennedy and and several others but you know, growing up around the house, and, and I'll ask you again, is there anybody that you can remember that was a visionary that, that you grew up around? Well, I'd have, to, I'd have to refer back to my dad, World War II veteran. Mm-hmm. Wasn't anything he couldn't make, do, or figure out, and that sounds like your dad. Daddy was, was ahead of his time on, on everything as far as... I, it. Even to this day, I sit back and I think of all the things that he did because we, we came over here as kids and unloaded boxcars over here at Gainesville, and there was a uh, caboose that sat over there on the tracks over sure. there. at the I think that was at the Midland there in town. And uh, Daddy ended up buying that caboose, and I'm thinking, what in the world? But it, it was these <laughs> things, but he sold it to the city of Roswell, and, and it sat over there. No, no train in Dawsonville, but we had a, a caboose that sat on the side of the road <laughs> for years. And so I came along, and the city of Roswell ended up city of Roswell. And, um, but that's just, Daddy was just so far ahead. He had the first building supply. We were out in the middle of the country. Oh, had, yeah. had the first building supply that there was around. And, and this was just one of the small things that he did. And... 
trying to fill his shoes, bud, that was one of the hardest things for me because everything that daddy put his mind to succeeded. And I remember him telling me one time, he said, uh, because he tried to do the same thing for us. He tried to instill the work ethic, which was, he really did excel in the work ethic because that's, that's one of the things that I can say about all three of us is that, that we're, we probably work way too much and, and we think way too much because just like building something, you know, you can sit down and build it or you can overthink it. And I remember a lot of the races, I know I'm skipping around a little bit, but, but as, as things come along, I can remember when we'd go to the races in the early years, and I can remember going to a race at Rockingham, and it rained before midway of the race, so they postponed the race till the next weekend. So we're sitting there all week long, a lap down. We were a lap down to the field. We'd, we'd gotten ourselves in trouble early in the race. And um, all week long, you're trying to think how you're going to get your lap back. Whether or not you win the race, you, you've got to get the lap back to be in contention. So you're sitting there all week long, and this is where you overfigure stuff. You just, and we did. We came back the next week and um, got our lap back, and I think we ran second. Were you allowed to touch the car for that week? No. No, I was thinking. Oh, really? No. So it was all, it was all just, just all, it's brainstorming. All in your mind. Oh, yeah, wow. It's all in your mind. And, and it's like, um, you know, there were some things. I remember going to a race at Michigan, and we stripped a spark plug out the happy hour. Ooh. This is Saturday afternoon, the last practice before you cover the cars up and go to the motel. And we stripped a spark plug out. Well, there you sit, we didn't have a spare motor. Sure. So we pulled the cylinder head off, and um, that's when we'd just signed with Melling. No, we'd just signed with Coors, and we'd been with Melling for a little while. So um, some of the Melling people, they left the track immediately. They were going to try to find a helicoil kit so that we, we didn't know if that would work or not. We'd never done it before. And, um, and they went in search of a helicoil kit while we pulled the head off the car, took the head to the motel. They found a helicoil kit. We put the helicoil in the head and won the race the next day. Wow. Which secured us a sponsorship with helicoil. They found out about it, and, um, and that helped us secure sponsorship with helicoil, which is a true story. And... and to come in in a race engine, we'd never done anything like that in a street engine. Right, and then the racing, and, you and know, the, the, the pressure is so much more. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. So when you came in and did that, but, but this is what you did. You, your mind, you, you never could turn your mind off, and I find that same thing today. I, I can't turn my mind off on this stuff. You, you get so deep in it, you just can't turn your mind off. But this is kind of the way the family was, and, and that was kind of the ethic that Daddy was. And I know why a lot of brilliant people burn out early, because you, you, <laughs> your, your you, mind doesn't stop. Your mind don't stop, and you can't, and you can't turn it off. You think that you can find all these hobbies and do all this stuff. Well, it don't exactly work that way. No hunting and fishing and all that on the side. It was I, all I about told what you somebody, were doing. I told somebody the first golf 
Somebody invited me to go play golf with them, and I thought to myself, this is the most boring thing that you could ever <laughs> possibly do because I told him after we played, played nine holes and it took all day long. And I'm like, I'm going to invent the first speed golf where it's the best score for the for nine nine holes and the as quickest quickly as, as quickly as, as, as quick as you can do it i'm i'm kind of like happy gilmore but um this this is kind of the mentality that you have to have i feel to succeed abundantly above what everybody else does and it does not guarantee that you'll be successful right well, I saw a quote from your brother Bill on the family's race effort to the top where it said, he said uh, it was like Wilbur and Orville Wright taking what they had and flying to the moon. I, I don't know that I, I, I can follow through on that, but, but my take is a little bit different. Yeah, we came from humble beginnings. And we came at a time that you could do it. But nowadays, and we were talking about this a few minutes ago, and you were talking about NASCAR and, and the level that they're at today. Mm -hmm. It's like you've been catapulted, catapulted into a whole different orbit. And, and I, I told on, on a podcast that we do that, that NASCAR it is now in one compared to F1, they just took it to a whole nother level right. and, and now it's in one because when you look at what has changed, not just in the last decade, but in the last two years. Oh gosh. It, it's incredible. And this year is gonna only be, I think the tip of the iceberg where NASCAR is concerned. Now the rest of racing, I'm worried about the rest of racing, but now NASCAR has been able to Every time I think I can't be surprised at what NASCAR does, they come up with something better. So you talk a little bit about unloading freight, working in the building business, the, the building supply business and that. Who was wrenching cars? How did the, the, the car thing bite you? Or is it just living in the country and being around the, you know, the moonshine stories and all that? How, how did the car bug get to you guys? How come you didn't wind up in the, the building supply business? Well, we did for years, but that kind of played out. It, it kind of ran its course. And, and Daddy was the one that saw that coming, that, that it was running its course. And, and, and that's what I say, Daddy was, was a visionary. He could see things coming before anybody else. And the difference is he not only saw it coming, he did something about it. Right, so you know, the, the time that the big box stores are what we call the big box stores now, he could see that on the horizon. He saw that coming, and he said I'm, he had opportunity to sell the building supply. He sold it, bought the Ford dealership. He bought it on my mom's birthday in 1969. And um, then, but we, we were already involved. Daddy was already, Daddy was the one that... Um, he loved being around Gober Sosby. He loved the cars. He, he, he loved the speed. There was a lot of that. And coming out of the military at the time, you know, everything from growing up in the Depression and then coming through the war and then coming home and seeing the buildup, everything was positive. Everything was growth. Everything was, you're, 
you could do anything you wanted to do. You didn't have anything really that held you back except yourself and what you could do. Because I know Daddy's buildings out there, and, and we talk about this a lot, you could go out here, build a house, build a building, do anything you want to do. There was nobody to oversee or tell you no zoning, no requirements, no anything. You could do whatever you wanted to mm -hmm. do. It was not too expensive to put up a building, to start a business, to do what you want to do. Now it, it's, it's hard to do. You, you have to plan, and you really do have to have more capital than you do plans because, as they say in, in building the courthouses and the schools, you know, you're, you're over budget before you start. Mm -hmm. And all the change orders, you know, you didn't know what a change order was. Whenever right. The change order was Daddy said to do this over here and, and do that over there. <laughs> okay, so Daddy pretty much ruled the roost on, on what went on. And, and he was very smart. He bought property. Uh, he had a little bit of property that the family had inherited, his mother inherited up there. And, and that's where he started on. But there were, was other property that came available through Georgia Craft or Rome Craft, they, they grew pulpwood for paper for years. And when that become, became non-profitable to where it was the taxes on the property were costing more than what you were getting for the pulpwood, the, the, the timber company sold the, the land. And Daddy bought a lot of the land around us from the timber companies. And Daddy wanted to get this, he wanted to, this was, mid 60s he wanted to you had to have 1500 acres and you could incorporate a town he wanted to incorporate a town and it was going to be not many people remember this but i remember sitting around daddy talking about this and and the town was going to be it was going to be white fords georgia that was going to be the name of the town why white fords georgia why did he want it to be named that he loved Fords. So you, you cut Daddy. <laughs> white Ford. White Fords, and he loved the white Fords because. Uh, hey, yeah, I love yeah. that. <laughs> so it was going to be white Fords, Georgia. But Daddy talked about at that time, he talked about the water that at some point in time you would pay for water. Okay, in the mid-60s or even early to mid-60s, how many people at that time thought that you would pay for water? Right. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't any bottle. There wasn't no, no, no such no, thing. No, no There's such a hose thing. pipe out back. No such thing. And Daddy, he was uh, Daddy at the building supply. He employed. I, I say this very, very respectfully because the people that he employed had gotten in trouble, and most of them had been in trouble because of moonshining or either hauling or making or, or whatever. But, you know, to me, I don't associate moonshine and racing because it wasn't, that wasn't how we started. No, that was a movie thing. I know it was a yeah, movie yeah. thing, but uh, Daddy, Daddy hired less than the, what people would consider the desirable people to have. But these people were good people. They had a good heart, and all they were trying to do was feed their families. Mm-hmm. And, and working and, hard. And working hard. And um, this was at a time in, in your life where you were influenced a lot. As today, you're influenced so much by the people you're around. But these were good people. And, and I can remember growing up with these people. And these were good people. 
and and still to this day I can remember uh, most all of them grew up around there and they were loyal and dedicated and they'd be to work on time and they'd work hard and no matter what you had to do they were there and they did it hmm. that's kind of the way the race team had to be because in the early years bud you know the quote should be is we don't have any money right now but as soon as we get a sponsor there will be some money <laughs> but that that was what was the early years of racing we had probably five people when we signed with Melling that was uh, 81 82 they um there was probably about five people that worked in the shop and only had one race car to begin with, only had one engine. And you worked hard because after every race, you brought the car home. Bill worked hard, Ernie worked hard. We, we worked, we had a motor that uh, we wiped a lobe off a camshaft on break-in and had to rebuild the engine. We worked all night long to get the engine rebuilt to get it back done to go into the car to, to make the race that weekend. Well, what was the first car in the first race? Well, it depends on when you go back to the dirt days or when you go back to the NASCAR days. The first car was the car that, uh, in NASCAR, was the one that Richie Pants drove. It, um, Bobby Allison ended up with that car after Richie got killed. I think Richie got killed in a plane crash. And um, Daddy ended up buying that car but we had to do a little bit of a body change because the year model that it was it was three year rule so we had to update the car a little bit so they went down in the field and cut the back off of a wrecked car <laughs> put the back on the yeah and and did all of that there at the building at the dealership there at Delonica there on the river did all that there and um, built that basically completed that car Ernie did the engine and we first raced because like I say daddy loved racing and he was involved long before we as we were growing up so uh, Jody drove some of his cars Herman Wise drove some of his cars we had several people that were driving different cars of daddy's but Daddy would build a car he never he never wanted to drive. He just wanted to own them and, and have somebody them. else drive them. But um, growing up, it was there were there were always race cars to play in sitting around, and um, and you played in them as kids. And then as we got old enough, um, Bill built the first. I think he ran dirt first over at Dixie, and then went to different places. And uh, Ernie drove a little bit. Uh, during that time and then I drove for a year I had a car that was a hand-me-down car that was Bill's Bill built a new car and I took the hand-me-down car and drove it for a season dirt track no it was asphalt, asphalt. it was over at Dixie ran asphalt okay and I enjoyed that but it wasn't I, I didn't live to do that that mm -hmm. that wasn't my calling and and I can honestly say from my perspective now Ernie and Bill may have a different idea about this but from my perspective I have I've never been envious of, of driving or building the motors I, I did my transmission and gear work and and I, I loved it from 
doing the dealership stuff back in the 70s. I loved doing that stuff. And it was stuff that I could do. Unlike the engine stuff, you pretty much, you had somebody that assembled cylinder heads. You had Ernie assembled short blocks and, and so forth. He, he could do it all, but it got to where that you couldn't do it all. It was just too much. But on the trans and gear stuff, I could do all of my stuff. I could do it from, from from the beginning to the end, and there were a lot of things I learned. There were a lot of people I met through it. The You say you could do it on your own, mm -hmm. but at some point in time, you ran out of time to do it on your own. The whole team did. You know, you had long. It, you had a lot of drivers before Bill. Bill came along, and the team morphed into weekend warriors to other folks and how did that change the whole dynamic of what what went on instead of it being you know five guys or whatever you know you got to bring in more people because you just you're burning yourselves out that's where you lose control of the quality because you you have to assume that everybody else loves and would dedicate the time to do whatever it took to get the car to the track to compete to win races. You figure that everybody would want to do what you were willing to do to do that, mm. but they're not. And, and then two mistakes are made because it, it's, like, it's, it's like Lanier Tech. You're, you're training people to know what you know, to love, you, you can't make them love it. That, that's the deal. It's, it's, you're either passionate about what you do or you're not. You either love what you do or you don't. And when you love what you do, you, you can't help but put in a lot of hours because I kept up with the trans and gear stuff through the whole thing. And we had at one time, there was probably 309 inch gears between mm -hmm. the two teams mm -hmm. that Bill had between him and, and Dan Marino's. And then there were probably 40, 45 transmissions between the two cars. This, this is how the sport evolved. You, you came from working on rear ends that came out of street cars because that's what you ran. Right, yeah. You, you, had a, you went down junkyard, you pulled a gear out of a street car, and that's what you ran. Mm -hmm. And then it evolved into full-fledged, you built it all. You, nothing was used, and it had a interval, a service interval to where that it might run one race, it got overhauled. It might run three races and get overhauled. And it might be a deal where you bought a complete new transmission because somebody had to manufacture this stuff. Well, you weren't manufacturing the components, just like the engine components, but you were assembling. So your responsibility was to make sure that you used the best components you thought were the best and the ones that you thought would live through the competition and get you to victory lane. Because the, the whole idea of the driveline stuff at that time is it can't win your race, but it can lose your race. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. Which, which is all wrong nowadays because everybody knows that the whole driveline, if, if you pay attention to detail and, and, and learn what you're supposed to, that, that driveline can win you a race. Learn that in the mid-80s because we, we did a deal where I had a, uh, a friend, and uh, we're still friends with him. He's in Minnesota, and we're still friends to this day. And he came down in 86 and showed me how to rebuild the 
the race transmissions. After we fell out of Riverside in 85 with a trans problem, Ernie said, we've got to do our own stuff. So uh, George came down, showed me how to do that, and we've been friends ever since. And even Richmond Gear up in Liberty, South Carolina, uh, still know most of those people up there because you had such a good relationship. And even, even Don Walsh with Ford, he was over all of Ford's uh, development, technology, and purchasing. He was the one that you'd go to. He was your go-to for any of the nine-inch components that Ford manufactured. And I have a rear-end case that um, it was in. It's in the Motorsport catalog. It's an M4141E was the part number, and the E was for Elliot because it was one that I specifically wanted that had a certain diameter for the carrier bearing that he didn't make for anybody else. And I said, I said, I want to get this for the race team because the race team commanded a lot of clout when you'd call, especially during the years that were run good. So the race teams do make a difference in, in what's manufactured sometimes. So I called Don and I said, Don, I said, uh, I said that B case that you make, I said, I want a larger carrier bearing. I said, the carrier bearings don't, <clears throat> excuse me, they don't lice. And I said, I want a larger carrier bearing. He said, which one do you want? I said, I want the, the LM603049 bearing. And he said, uh, he said, how many of these do you want? I said, I said, I'd take 300 cases. If you could do 300 cases, I said, I'd take them all. And he said, wow. he said, let me, let me do a little more work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he called me the next day and he said, I'm going to make them. But he said, I'm not going to make them for you. He said, I'm going to make them and put them in the catalog. He said, I think that's a great idea. This is the stuff. And, and when we signed on with Coors, I was doing the trans stuff and, and um, I got the strangest phone call. And, and you're talking about people that grew up in the country and, and you don't know as, as they say, crap from Shinola as mm -hmm. far as anything going on. And I got a call from an engineer out at Coors. And he said, I think I've got something that I can help you with. He said, it's a process we do for the space industry. And I said, do what? <laughs> I, said, I said, I thought you just did beer. He said, no. He said, that's a little bit of a misconception. I said, yep. I said, I think so. But um, they did stuff for the space program. And he said, we have a micro polishing process. And that micro polishing process was the early on slot of the REM, REM yeah. finishes that polished the surface to such a fine degree that it eliminates a lot of the friction. And um, that was the first one of those I ran was in 1986 and, and the REM the first of the RAM polishing that I know of was five years later. Did you have a way to test that against what you had been running to see what an improvement it made? No, because it was, you knew it in what the parts looked like after they ran the race. Okay. You knew it in what they looked like. And, and that's why, where you have to know. And when you've done it long enough and you know what you're looking for, you know by what you do little subtle changes you make that make differences <laughs> and this one made a difference so you've got this huge amount of parts for yep. you, you've got several different drivers you've got several different teams running all out of the same place when did it become all focused in on bill and the brothers and the people that worked for the team 
actually it probably went the other way. It was focused on, on Bill Brothers and the team in the very early beginning. But as you grow, you know you have growing pains. Mm -hmm. And those growing pains take away from everything that is supposed to be on what keep your eye on the goalpost and, and keep your eye on victory line. This is where this is where you want to be at, this is what you want to do. All this other stuff is a lot of it's a distraction. Right. Some of it is a help. Some of it is a help, but a lot of it's a distraction. Because with the success came more things that tore you away from the fact that you want to you know, in the early years Bill worked on the cars. All the drivers worked on their own cars. Right, yeah. As that evolved, then the drivers don't work on the cars no more. You have a few drivers, a very few, that are still active, but most are not. Mm -hmm. Did that disconnect Bill from the team? In a, in a small way, anything that you do that does that is a distraction, yeah, and, and, and does take focus away. How did that affect the rest of you as the focus was taken over? You're pulling a person out of the team that is driving the car. Now they're showing up to drive the car. How did that affect the rest of you as far as, uh, you know, you having to take that work over for him that he was doing or hiring but, somebody else in? But it's the subtle that it's, it's like to say about boiling a frog. It, it's the subtle that you don't really think about it that much until it gets to a a dilemma. It, it gets to a problem where you were relying on Bill to set up his, he was so good at setting up his own chassis and, and being able to fine tune his car for the race. Now you get into the deal where he's sitting in the seat, you've got somebody else making the changes to the car and he goes out and now he's upset because the car isn't doing what he wants it to do. You're frustrated because you don't know what to do. You've hired the best people you think that can do the job, but yet they may not know Bill's particular style, how he likes his car. They may have been able to set the car up for somebody else that was that had a different style, just like Kyle Busch. Kyle Busch's got a style of his own. Bill's got a style of his own. And it wasn't an error where you could overlay and and you're not trying and and you're not trying to down anybody or cause any problems. You're you're trying to assess. You're trying to back up and look at the picture and 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 look at where, where are we going? Are are we making ourselves better? Or are we making ourselves worse? Or is it something? It's a transition, and you just got to work through it. You're just going to have to work through it. But with the pressure of racing, you don't have that that grace of being able to take a week off mm. and regroup and come back. You, you don't because every weekend it comes, no matter what, every weekend it comes. Now, the schedule in NASCAR is probably the most grueling of any racing I can think of uh, because of the amount of time that you're on the road and then at the racetrack and the amount of races you have to run in a year. Yeah, but it was worse in the beginning because think about it. You had fewer people. Sure. You had more practice days, yep. and you did not have, in the early years, you did not have the ability to fly the teams to all the events that you have now. 
interesting because in the early days, how many guys were you taking to the track to actually race the car? You weren't flying, you were driving the truck. Driving tell, us, the truck. tell us about some of those days. I remember you told me an interesting story about the truck <laughs> one, one evening. So. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a lot of interesting stories uh, about the truck because yeah. it was, um, I guarantee you, if I'd had to fill out a logbook during that time, because I can remember leaving, oh, oh, we were talking about this the other night at the dinner table and how big your bladder is. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I left in the truck going to Michigan, and I, I, I told them I was going to drive all the way up there, which they never got the truck loaded on time. You were always late. So I had to be at the track by 6 a.m. the next morning. And From Dawsonville. From Dawsonville. Uh-huh. It's 702 miles to Michigan. And it took about 11 and a half hours to get there. <laughs> okay, so I said, I'm going to drive to Michigan and I'm not going to stop. I made it within about a half hour of the racetrack <laughs> and had to stop. I was about to burst. <laughs> and, uh, but I made it um, 11 hours and uh, it finally got me. But um, those trips, I, I had uh, a trip, they got the truck loaded late. And Did you have a co driver? No. You were doing this alone, so alone. you're out there with lots of money in that trailer, and you, you're by yourself. You didn't think about that. You just didn't think about it. it. It's like changing tires on pit road. If you thought about the danger involved, you couldn't do the job. And you were a tire changer. Yeah. Run over twice. Yeah. Run over twice. Neck surgery there to to make up for one of those. Yeah. And that came, that came later on. But had a trip to uh, Richmond, Virginia. They got the truck loaded late, and... Uh, had a friend, David McElroy, and he was up at Tacoa at the time. And David called me right before I was getting ready to leave. And this was probably, it was in the middle of summer. It wasn't dark yet. I think I left Dawsonville about 7 o'clock. And um, I knew it was going to be 10 and a half hours up there. And I had to be there when track opened next morning at 6. And David called me. I was getting ready to leave in the truck, and he said, uh, "He said, uh, why didn't you left yet?" I said, "Ask the guys loading the truck." I said, "Truck's not loaded yet." I said, "Be down here in a few minutes." He said, "You want me to go with you?" I said, uh, "You sure you want to go?" I said, "I don't have time to get off at the exit." He said, "Well, I'll have somebody meet me under the exit up there at Commerce." He said, "I'll be sitting there on the side of the road waiting on you." He said, "You just pull over and stop." <laughs> And he said, if you get stopped on the way up there, he said, I'll slide over in the seat and flash my badge. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'm all about that. And we head up the road, and sometime in the morning hours, he's sitting over in the passenger seat, and I'm driving, and all of a sudden I'm in the emergency lane, and I woke up and, and <laughs> pulled back on the lane I'm supposed to be in, and he raises up and he said, you fall asleep? I said, a little bit. And he said, <laughs> so we made it to rest away just fine and got there the next morning about 6 o'clock. What'd that do for the juices? You didn't go to sleep oh, after that, did you? I didn't go to sleep after that. That scared, <laughs> that scared me to death because I was in emergency lane and I was way on the emergency lane. So, but this is the stuff that you, you just can't do anymore. And not because you can't do it, but you don't want to do that anymore either. No, I understand. There were a lot of those trips that um, you needed two drivers and and you needed. But uh, I drove with a co-driver. We went to California, and I'd never driven that before. And we 
kind of had more than one set of logbooks and we were two drivers and <laughs> we were we out we we made it almost we made it to El Paso going out there and and uh, we did pretty good because driving time going out there was 40 hours and um, we we did pretty good and we stopped in El Paso and it was about another if I remember right probably another two hours to Riverside oh that was a trip too because Riverside got out there close to never been to Riverside never been to California before oh that was culture shock <laughs> from, from from people from south from uh, from rural Georgia that was that was culture shock but got out there and we were looking for the racetrack because I didn't have an address or anything Ernie just gave me cash money and said go to California and <laughs> couldn't couldn't Google it huh <laughs> couldn't Google it and you didn't have a cell phone so anyway I pulled over there was a uh, like a 7-eleven i don't think it was a 7-eleven but it was a convenience store and took the exit and stopped at it and went in and of course i couldn't understand the lingo i was we were we were neither could they (laughs) i I needed an interpreter and they did too and there was a young kid there on a motorcycle and he was carrying his helmet, and he said, well, I know where that track is. He said, go down here, three exits, and take a right. And he said, you'll, you'll dead end into it. We got up into a canyon up there, had to back a mile out of that canyon. because oh, there was, oh. yeah. was he thinking motorcycle track? No, he was thinking, <laughs> I'm going to get these guys. They're, they don't know what they're doing or where oh. they're at. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. All right, so you, you take off, and you're going 40 hours in a truck yeah. to the other side of our country. Who in the world was maintaining, was it one truck? Who in the world was maintaining this truck, and did it ever break down? That was the grace of God. I I, I credited the fact that the the preacher that we had at the racetrack, we had a, and and there weren't many church services that went on at the racetrack, but I tried to find them every time they had one and go as much as I could to them, and they were brief at that. And in the early years, there weren't very many, but I credited the fact that we carried the church, the podium for the preacher and the ah, collection plates. Ah, okay. And I credited, I credited <laughs> all of that to that. Grace of God through the whole thing, because I'm telling you, it, God carried me through a lot of things. And to answer your question, nobody really serviced the truck. We changed the oil and filters. But as far as servicing the truck. And that's what I always told Ernie. I said, y'all never get me loaded in time to where if I had a breakdown, yeah. the truck's on the side of the road. I mm-hmm. said, I said, you, you never allow for time because it was always last minute. It was always last minute. Now you and I, you, you talk about, you know, having the, the church services. You and I were talking one day about, there was a time when all the teams, the, the, the family, everybody would sit down in the garages and have a dinner everybody would bring stuff to the dinner yeah usually that was talladega or daytona they they had those extra garages and and usually it was i i can remember sitting down with the petties and the allisons and the bonnets and and all these people and everybody put a spread just like you'd have a a covered dish at the church Mm -hmm. the down the tables where the garage where the grand national garage was Bush Grand National Garage was, you had all these tables laid out and all the families 
you you could go eat with anybody you could at that time you could go on anybody's truck that's what changed the most to me whenever we got into the new improved nascar of the 90s was that um when when i went to there was a race that i went to bill had gone to drive for ray and um I went to the truck to see Bill, and there was a sign on the back of the truck that said, Crew Only. Right. And I walked up to the back door and opened the door, and the guy was standing there at the door, and he just kind of moved over in front of me, and he said, Can I help you? And I said, Yeah, I I want to see Bill. He said, Well, he ain't here, but he said, Just stand over there. When he comes, you can see him. And I'm like, okay. Wow. You know, it's like Jeff Gordon. Jeff was standing. Atlanta had had some asphalt come up on the race surface and Jeff was the they'd taken his car to the Unical station to get it filled up with fuel which this is you push the car up to the front of the building and they fill it with fuel and Jeff was standing there at the toolbox and and I walked up to Jeff and I said Jeff I said how's the track he said he looked at me kind of funny and he said "Uh, you'll have to talk to my agent over there I said, well, I did, you know, I said, is the track, uh, you know, how, how bad is it or is it coming up or, you know, I've talked to my agent. Really? This, this stuff, you know, this stuff changes and, and, you know, it's like nowadays, uh, the old saying, when you're hot, you're hot. When you're not, you're not. Yeah. There's a lot of truth in that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of truth in that. And, and you'll find yourself on the other side of the fence before long. You're, you're there to begin with. You come in, and then you're on the other side of the fence again. But, but this is how it changes, and nothing you can do about that. It's just, it's, 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 it's design. Just the way it rolls. Yeah, nature's design, I think. Now, back in the day, you were taking local folks to the track to, to crew the cars and that. You had some some tragedies from all of that. Tell us a little bit about what went on in the in the pits and and you know you're talking about getting run over. I remember we were at a petty driving experience, you and me, and they had a thing set up where people were you know running the the nuts on a wheel and it was spring loaded and and uh, you walked past the guy and he was pretty proud of his time and he said, "Try it again with me running over your feet." Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah one of the. Uh one of the earlier experiences is the the first race we made at Talladega. Never will forget that one because you pick your pit position by how you qualify. And everybody wanted to be on the end of the racetrack toward the first turn because you could, there was no traffic to maneuver, maneuver through. You were the first car if you were on the pole and you could just duck out and, and get into traffic. So we qualified probably about 40th and we were right there as you come off a of turn four and we were actually one of the we might have been not been the first pit but we were among the first three or four pits there when you come off a of turn four well when there was no speed limit on pit road they come off the bank and probably about 160. into the pits into the down pit road right okay so if you're at the other end of pit road, you got to consider that pit road is probably, it ain't a half mile long, but it's long. And those cars going to the other end of pit road, they're cooking. And they're not exactly right there next to you, no, but they're over about 40 feet from you. And you get a sense of how fast at 40 
feet and they're running 140, 150, you get a sense of how fast that is. And you still got to run out in front of a car that's going to, you're going to pit. That you're going to pit and you don't know in the back of your mind, you don't know, well, I hope he knows where we're at and can stop and can judge, you know, where he's at because he's trying to get in as quick as he can. And he's trying to make sure that he hits his marks. He holds the brakes because if you don't hold the brakes, and this happened many times where you're changing a front tire and you're trying to line the lug nuts with the studs and the hub the is turning yeah. And, yeah. You, and you can't make that work. You just, you know, and, and you're yelling, hold the brake, hold the brake, and nobody can hear anything. Or like the deal was when uh, I remember we were at Michigan and Sterling was pitted in front of us and Sterling came in ahead of us and was stopped. Bill came in just seconds after Sterling got in. I changed the right front tire and then I heard something and I felt it got warmer. And I looked around the car and they dropped the fuel can and it was on fire. And I'm thinking, do I run around the car or do I stay where I'm at? What? And I ran around the car, changed my tire as the fireman was extinguishing the, the fire from the can. All of this stuff going on, and this is a normal day. This is, this is just a normal day. You think it's abnormal, but it's a normal day. And, and I think that was probably one of the worst things is a fire on pit road is probably one of the worst things that I could imagine. Being hit was bad enough, but I don't want any of the fire part. Well, you had a lot to, the, the team had a lot to do with changing what went on on pit road through tragedy. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, the, the first time we got ran over was 85 out in California. We were pitted out there. We were right at the entrance of where the cars came into pit road. and. Uh, somebody had turned Michael Waltrip around, and Michael got into everybody on the other side of the car, and Chuck Hill was the one that was hurt the worst out there, and he stayed out there a month, month and a half in the hospital out there. I tell him it changed him forevermore, because he, get, he got him some soul blood out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, but it, it wasn't a funny deal, because he's still living with the effects of that to this day. And I was very blessed, because I was hurt probably the least of the ones out there and and uh, still over time you still have a lot of things that crop up because of that and uh, you, you think you outgrow that stuff but that stuff comes back and and finds you but um, the rules didn't change the speed limit on pit road was still unlimited at that time and then we came to Atlanta couple of years after that and, and the same thing happened again. Ricky Rudd came in a little hot and got the car turned around and it wiped out the side of the car and and um, then NASCAR came in and, and changed the speed limit and um, it um, that changed things forevermore because you uh, had a speed limit on pit road and I can remember going to Daytona the race that was the last race of the year, and I can remember going to Daytona the next year, and and I, I told I told the guys I said I'm gonna work the first first four races next year, just to make sure I can still do what I was doing. I didn't because you know if you're afraid to do that, if if that's in your mind, you're not gonna do a good job anyway. And um, 
anyway, um, we we came down to it and um, race started. And first time Bill came down pit road, it was like I you waited and you waited and you waited, and it was it was the most boring thing I had ever done. The the adrenaline rush you get from doing that on pit road with no speed limit and the cars coming in and all the stuff going on, it is addictive. Sure. It is addictive. And and as much as I'd love to tell you that, that everybody needs to experience that, maybe they don't, but but it was addictive and, and you 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 do get addicted to that rush that goes on because so many things going on around you, and you've got to focus on what you're doing. Now, the Atlanta race, the wreck, you lost a crew member because of that situation. Mm-hmm. Was there a – I know Bill had said something about he he was done racing, or I saw that quote somewhere. How did that affect the team? I mean, you had to go on and race the next week, but, you know, what what was the, the moments like? But I think everybody knew – in the back of your mind, you knew the dangers, but you didn't know the. Re- you really didn't consider the realities of the dangers, and and we all go through life that way. We all go through that life that, that way, and um, I was reading this morning in Second uh, Timothy, and it tells you to fear not. And I know it's talking about the kingdom and fear not and what you got to do for the kingdom, but also, too, life is pretty much that way, too. If, if this is going to affect you that much, you need to find something else to do. Mm. Mm-hmm. You need to find something else to do. This is not for you. Okay, let's go to a, a, a moment that was, you know, just befuddled people, um, how it happened. Um, how you came out of the situation, and to this day, there's still people that, that think your car was uh, smaller than it should have been. Tell us about Talladega. Talladega. You know, there's been a lot, a lot of stories told about Talladega, <laughs> but um, I was, I was reading in the actually what got me thinking about it was reading these new rules that are coming down for NASCAR for this year and the penalties that are going to be assessed for that. And I was thinking about all the things that you could. There were gray areas at that time, and and they had somebody quoted in here in in today's article that there's no race cars that's ever been legal that's raced. And I'll just say that there's been, there's cars that's more legal than others. (laughs) And and there are varying degrees of of legal and and not legal. And and it's all in your mind as as to what you can get by with. But NASCAR, if if people want to read what they've done as far as what's coming, it's it's pretty severe on the penalties that's coming. And in the early years, you didn't have that severity of, of the rules. They might take the part away from you whatever you had that wasn't legal they might take that away from you but there wasn't a lot that changed as as it went through the years Uh, some of the things got stiffer penalties than others and um but you know talladega and and the cars that we took to daytona and talladega both we were we were so naive we didn't really know how to cheat we 
there were some gray areas we pushed, yes. But as far as being black and white and, and being wrong, no, there weren't many times that we were ever, ever went to the racetrack. I can only remember one time we went to the racetrack. Bill had put on the drive plates on the rear end of the car. They're steel drive plates, and those drive plates probably weigh a couple of pounds apiece. Okay, so he went with qualifying, he changed them and put an aluminum drive plate on an aluminum drive plate, you, you have to consider what you're doing because the benefits of a pound or two on a 3,600-pound race car. And a splined piece of aluminum. Oh, <laughs> and it's so close to the center. If you want to make a difference, you get the weight that's out further, you know, kind of like the weight that's even down to the roll cage and everything above your center of gravity of the car. So everything in the car that's above probably the center of the wheels uh, is affected a whole lot more than anything down low or close to center. It, it has to do with centrifugal weight. So the benefits of what we did, and <laughs> they caught that first thing, and, and they confiscated those two pieces, which wasn't a big deal. But beyond that, I can't ever remember Yes, you fudge a little bit on the body because there wasn't an exact rule like there is now where the cage comes down on the car and, and, and it was basically what you could get by with when you went to the templates, but it might be an eighth of an inch. It wasn't an inch. It wasn't blatant in what you did. You fudged a little bit. Mm -hmm. It might have been the, the thickness of a pencil, but you're talking about over the length of a car being 17 feet, you might be off the width of a pencil. But that day in Talladega, two laps, five, you know, five miles. Yeah, but, that track, but, but and, and you made it up. Nobody realizes how hard we all worked. Oh, gosh, yeah. And, and we worked extremely hard and we were very driven in what we were trying to do. And you've got to look at the fact that Ford, whether they knew it or not, it, it was absolutely one of the best racing bodies that was built because Monte Carlo came in and, you know, they changed the rear window because it didn't have the correct balance on the car. They came in and did that long back glass. Yeah, what they car. call it? They had on the Pontiac's too. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember what it was called. I don't called. remember what it was called, but it was ugly. Yeah, it was <laughs> ugly. And um, anyway, that was one of the best race cars, and, and that led to a championship year. Right. Because because everything lined up, you were driven to do what you do. You had enough time under your belt that you had learned what it took to win a championship. You know, the short tracks and the super speedways, the engines, the development that Ernie did through the, through the cylinder heads and intake manifolds and stuff, and then through what Bill had learned through the chassis stuff, and then massaging on the body and doing what you needed to do. But it... It, before the race and after the race, it passed all the scrutiny that, that they had to offer because they didn't want to see anybody. It's, it was kind of like 85 when we went to Daytona and, and ran so good down there. They don't like for any one car to break away from the field and run good. They're, mm -hmm. they're going to they're do their best to make sure that 
Everyone is close in competition. And you mentioned Ernie's engines. A lot of people that day were having engine failures. Yep. Went out of the race. You broke an oil fitting. I don't know where the fitting was on the car, but you broke an oil fitting. It didn't break. It was actually the line just came loose. It, came was, loose. Okay. it was the braided line. And you and I both know that the braided line, if you, if you tighten that thing and it's under any kind of pressure, it will pull itself loose. Right. And that's all it did. And, and Bill said on the radio when, when the car started smoking and, and they came on the radio and, and said on the PA system that we'd lost an engine. And Bill said, motor's still running. He said, I've still got oil pressure. So we knew then that it was probably a line, but we had no idea if we could fix it or not. Did they, did they put the track under caution because of the oil that had been laid down? Did that help you as far as time-wise? That allowed us to tighten the fitting on the car without losing more time. Okay. We would have lost more time had it not been for that. But sitting there, you couldn't go out and come back in. You had to get the wrench and tighten the fitting because if you'd lost a whole lot more oil during the time that you're tightening the fitting, you're putting oil in, but you're talking about a tank behind the seat that you can't get to anyway. Oh, no, no, no especially with the driver now, these, and stuff. These dry there. sump tanks, they're, they're hard to get to, and if you... I can't remember, I think that one had a sight glass in it, but a lot of those tanks didn't have a sight glass. You filled them to a level and you had a welding rod that you <laughs> put down in the tank and you had a, a, a file mark on it to where that level should be. All of this stuff, you know, you, you learn so much and, and that's how technology has changed over the years is, is you learn through this and, and the attrition rate that you had then you just don't have today. Take us from the truck to the plane era. How did, you know, I remember being in the shop one day where you flew a plane, a plane and you didn't fly a plane, you flew an engine on mm-hmm. a plane to Daytona. It was still warm and they loaded it on the engine coming off the dyno. When did, when did that era start for you and, and was that leading into the 90s and, and the changes that we were about to see? It was, and Daddy always said that, um, racing would always cost the same he said it's the price of the toys well in the early years everybody looked at the airplanes as being toys you know they never considered the fact of where we would be today and it has it has made it a lot easier for teams to travel the country not just Look, look at look at everybody that uses aviation today. Sure. Yeah. Everybody's wanting to get there like grits. They, they want it instant. Mm-hmm. They, they want to be there. <laughs> and that is one of the things that had to evolve where you've got such specialized people doing their jobs that it wasn't like it used to be where any warm body could come from behind the fence and help you fuel the car or do the stuff, the, the grunt work on pit road to do the pit stops and stuff. There were the basic people you had to have there, but other than that, you needed warm bodies. And um, I'm not saying that, that they didn't need brains. Yeah, they did, but you took who you could get in the beginning. Yeah, because you, were, you weren't winning races in the pits at that no, point in time. You were just trying to get to a pit stop and, and get back out on the racetrack as best you could. And it was an evolution because as, as we said in the beginning, you know, first we got to finish races, 
then once we start finishing races, then we need to be in the top 10, then we need to get into the top five, and then we need to be competitive. So you had a roadmap wow. of where you were going, but it just seemed like it took forever, bud, to get there. And the evolution of the airplane came slow because Bill got his pilot's license. Not long after that, I think he bought his first plane sometime around 85. But you had to get enough money, you had to earn enough money to get even the small airplane. Because the small airplane at that time, still in relative terms, wasn't cheap. And when you talk about the airplanes today, you know, most all the drivers have an airplane where you're talking million to five million for most of the planes that they're flying. Yeah, they're flying jets. <clears throat> yeah. And you have to have, you, but even back in the day, did, Bill wasn't allowed to work on his plane, was he? Did you have to have a certified guy come and work on the plane? You, you usually carried it somewhere. He had a guy that was at, uh, over at Jefferson, mm -hmm. Leroy Allen, that worked on his planes a good bit. But... Usually, other than the annual that they had to have each year, there wasn't a lot. If you did what you were supposed to do, checking the oil, you could change your own oil, do a little bit of maintenance on your plane, but other than that, but usually they were pretty trouble-free if you bought a pretty good plane. Now, you mentioned earlier that your dad could see things coming. Yeah. When did you guys see it coming when did you say that this was you know we need to part ways um you know we burned ourselves out we you know whatever whatever the circumstances were when did you see that point coming i don't know that we ever saw it coming or admitted to it <laughs> <laughs> i don't think we ever gave up because when when you look at what we're still trying to do i mean you you look at me and and i'm 71 okay i'm still doing my trans and gear stuff because i love to do it sure yeah Okay, so you, you, get, you fall into the same thing. And I don't know that you ever want to admit defeat on anything. Yeah, you might have to get into something different because when, the, when all the teams changed, when, when, let's see, probably the first of that was Bill going to drive for Junior in 92. Then you're, then you're in the reality of other drivers and how different drivers are, and you you get into the, I think the worst of that was the fact that you get into the deal that you hadn't gotten into before. Were even when Ernie Ernie had mono there for a little while in the '86, '87, somewhere in there and you get infighting between the two shops, between the chassis shop and the engine shop. And that was common through all of the teams at that time, is that the people doing the engines, they were always, it was always the engine's fault, it was the chassis's fault, you were always blaming something. Mm -hmm. and, and if it wasn't that, it was something else. You had a bad pit stop, well, you know, Dan didn't get down, he dropped the load nut, whatever that might be. You had so many, the blame game went on, and. I uh, had a friend of mine that um, we had breakfast together yesterday and we were talking about a lot of different things and his son passed away early in life. He'd have been a good race car driver, but he was putting together a team for him. They ran ARCA and, and did quite well. And 
we talked one day and he asked me, he said, uh, he said, who is the, so I'll pick your brain, he said, who's the first person you'd hire if you were putting together a race team? He said, I think it ought to be the crew chief. And I looked at Fred and I said, Fred, I said, I would hire a psychiatrist or a psychologist. <laughs> if or an e accountant, right? <laughs> no, if everyone isn't on the same page, sure. and if anyone comes to work disgruntled, mm -hmm. one bad apple, and, and that is so true in, in everything that you do. You get into a work situation just like even at Lanier Tech. Mm -hmm. You have somebody come in that is all they want to do is complain or they might have serious they might have some serious issues going on at home that, that they're having to work through. It it might be other problems, it might be monetary problems. If if they're a valuable employee, you need to help them work through if if any way possible. You need to help them work through this because, number one, it is for their benefit, but number two, it benefits everybody. Absolutely. And you have no idea. It's like I tell my son when he leaves home, I said, you be careful on the road because I said, you don't know how anyone leaves home any morning. You don't know what frame of mind they're in. You right. might be the one that sets them off. Mm -hmm. You cut in, you might be the one that sets them off. And I That's said, right. I said a road rage deal. I said it happens quicker than you think. And I said it has a very bad ending. Well, when I asked you about, you know, seeing into the future or seeing how things were changing, I think back to the era of, you mentioned Jeff Gordon. I remember when Jeff Gordon came into the sport. Yeah, I changed tires for them. There was in a the early years. It was yeah. like a, it was like a changing of the guard, not unlike what you see nowadays, because nobody could do what you guys did. Yeah, but nowadays. But do you see what, what to me was the real element that changed that was Hendrick, mm -hmm. and Hendrick changed that forevermore by the number of teams he assembled, successful teams at one time. Was that good for the sport? Was it bad for the sport? I could argue it both ways, because it led to the evolution that you're in now because I called him the first of the super teams because he was ahead of everyone else. Whatever structure he put together early, they did a doggone good job. But but was it good for the sport? I can't honestly say it was good for the sport. Do you think NASCAR based their decision to limit the amount of cars? And, of course, that got worked around too, the, the amount of cars that a team could own. Do you think that that uh, affected NASCAR in saying, hey, you know, you can't have 10 teams out of your shop? I don't know that it did because there were, there were ways around it. It's like everything else. If yep. you've got money, there's ways around it. Yeah, your, and, wife, your and, wife can own the team. Yeah, Roush, Roush was his wife owned one of the cars, and, and I think he had five teams at one time under his roof. And I think wife owned one of the teams, and I think he owned four of the teams. So there, there's ways around this that, that you can definitely get around this. But in the evolution, but I don't know that you could change anything if you went back and tried to change it. And I don't know how it would factor in if you tried to change it. 
Well, they certainly are trying now. Well, you know, we've got a clean slate, not my words, the, you know, NASCAR's words, well, with, we, with the car. We, we have we to live with whatever, whatever their rule book, whatever they come up with, you've got to adhere to and, and live with. And, and I always say it's, it's you know, if, if I want to change it, NASCAR's for sale, I could go buy it and change it. But they know where they want to go. They have a plan, and it seems to be working extremely well for them and their plan and what they're doing. Because as I told you before, when Michael Jordan came in, you didn't just raise the bar. You, you went to a whole different planet as far as we're, we're racing. Because back, of, back before Michael Jordan came in, um, I don't know that a charter would brought what they said a charter was worth to be able to race one of the NASCAR cars. What but is after, a charter right now? There is no telling what a charter is right now. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know any that's available. And I would say that you would have to be, by the time you wheel and deal and get into these things, that's one thing. But, but the charters are so expensive that I don't know anybody that's bought one. I don't know that any that, that I've seen any that's traded lately because they're in demand. Tell us about the new car. Your thoughts? My thoughts is that um, you could see it coming. You could see it coming. If 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 you knew your racing, you could see it coming. And it was driven. I feel by probably Jim France, Roger Penske, because it, it is patterned to me much after the, 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 the V8 supercar. And the new car, it's a race car. It's, it's, it's going to be successful, and it's just, you know, we've talked a lot about racing and the evolution, and, and it's kind of like comparing the dirt cars that we grew up with. Even though you had a late model race car, you know, it was a chassis might have been cut down, it was lowered, it was, suspension points may have been moved on the car. They even got into acid dipping the bodies on the cars yep. to make them lighter. Yep. You, you, you dip them in an acid solution to lighten up the cars. The evolution in dirt is no different to me than where asphalt is going because what you know asphalt racing locally your your local market has has it's hurting and all of the things that you used to do to a asphalt car that adjustments you could make on it you didn't have that on a dirt car now you do the expensive shocks the expansion in engine programs all the stuff it, it, it's all of it's all gone to something else and it's still racing it'll be around it's it's going to be around as long as as long as people have cars <laughs> i think it's going to be around even the electric stuff is going to change things oh yeah and and yeah. that is what I, I i went to rick hendrick at daytona <clears throat> excuse me i was at uh, gresham that was probably about 2013 or 14. I tried to get him to go with me to GM to see if they'd do a, um, what did I, what was I going to call it? I was going to call it a, a series. They would do the Volt cars, do the electric cars, 
as like a exposition type, a, a, a deal where you could go out and kind of get an idea of what it would be like to have electric cars run and, and do this at selected places around. Back in 2013, yeah. 2014. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's, well, you know, that's way ahead the, of the curve. Yeah, and the Volt, the first it's evolution coming. of the Volt. Oh, it's yeah, coming. right. It's coming. Right. And there's it's no coming. doubt about it. But you talk about, you know, local short tracks, at least around this area, pavement tracks or dirt. Well, I guess, well, there's some, there's more dirt tracks running than there are yeah. pavement tracks. Yes. Is, it, is it because a guy can still build a dirt car? That is what people think. Okay. That, but there's where I was going with the evolution of the dirt car. Now you've got to take it to somebody that's really good to set it up because they have to have a pull-down fixture. Mm -hmm. They have to be able to, uh, what is it, um, um, they index the rear end to where when it pulls up and tries to lift the left front up when it gets weight on the rear end. They have to index these things, but they have to be on a pull-down rig. There's so much to this now, it's so complicated. Now the average person can't do it. Yeah, because you talk about indexing the chassis and stuff, a lot of that has to do with the flex of the chassis, and unless you can measure that. You, unless you have a pull-down rig, you can't yeah. measure that, and the yeah. pull-down rig came from NASCAR, which went then to the short track series, because we were in the same thing at Gresham, and I said, I said, the, the normal person not only cannot afford this, I said, they're not going to do this, because I said, they like to tinker with their own cars. And I said, you can't do this on a part-time basis and be successful in mm -hmm. it. And there's where racing has changed. Racing started as a hobby, and it's a lucrative sport right now. Yeah, it's big business, it no doubt about it. It is big business. Well, and, speak, speaking of big business, Dan Elliott Incorporated. Mm -hmm. All right, you're building gear. You're still building gears yeah. for people because you love it. Where are we? Where are we headed, racing-wise? Uh, Where's what's what's next for Dan? Let's put it that way. I don't know if I, I think if I'd have known 20 years ago what I know today, I'd have changed professions. <laughs> well, I, I saw you in the classroom. You used to mm -hmm. teach at Lanier Tech, uh, taught transmissions there when I was teaching there. I I saw you as a good teacher. I think uh, I think that would have been a a good way for you to go if you could put up with the administration. That that's always the, the you know the you, twist. You watch the movie School of Rock. <laughs> <laughs> those who can do those who can't teach okay <laughs> i don't know um yeah but you can do both i've seen you i i can do both i i get frustrated because the kids not everybody has the same passion you do. I understand. I understand okay so and, and I can understand any educator, I can understand any teacher that teaches and, love, and loves what they do, that they're passionate about what they do. And the reason for this is that you, you, didn't, you didn't get this gray hair for nothing. You know, there's things that you learned in your life that you want to be able to communicate with the kids that you're going to go through this at some point in time. It may not exactly be word for word what you're going to go through, but you're going to go through the same things. And just like changing professions, you, you better keep a close eye because when you're down in the gears, in the motors, in your whatever your profession is, when you're down in the pits working, life is passing you by and you better 
pay close attention to what's going on around you and what the trend is getting ready to be. Because what, what probably bothers me the most, I don't know if I'll live to see all of this or not as far as the electric car and what that's gonna mean because the drivetrain as we know it today, the engine, just like Ernie, just like, okay, and the chassis, it's going to evolve. It's going to change. It's going to be different. But uh, I read where Tesla is coming with an electric car that's zero to 60 in 1.8 seconds. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 1.8 seconds. Oh, my. That's going to set you back in the seat. That's, wow. that's the equivalent of me comparing my early years when I'd ride in a whether it be a big block forward, we're talking about a 428 or 429, and then right. a 427 Chevrolet. Because I can remember, I can remember sometime in my, I was about, I was probably about 16, and um, they used to dismantle some cars up the road from us in a garage up there that worked at night, and uh, they put a 427. They they borrowed the motor out of a Corvette and put it in a 61 Impala. And the boy that put it in the Impala, he was, he piced down the road. I was standing up by the side of the road. And he came back up the road and he stopped. And he said, uh, I knew him and he said, uh, he said, you want to take a ride? And I said, love to. And it's a 61 Chevrolet Impala, big old car, big old boat anchor. And they put a 427, 435 out of a 67 Corvette in it. And uh, I'd have been 16 at that time. so. Anyway, we go up the road. That was the fastest thing I had sat in, and he didn't hold anything back. And got killed a few years after that, trying to outrun the law in a 57 Ford. So um, gotta be careful in what you do. But um, some of those big blocks, you know, when you compare eras, if people, I know the LSs that people are building today and the blowers and stuff, and they're 800 horse or more. I know oh, yeah. one that's 1,000 yeah. horse. And making that hook up on the highway to keep, you know, you, you, you spin the tires and, and don't go anywhere. But to ride in those production cars and how they set you back in the seat, the, oh, yeah. the centrifugal force they had was, was unreal. But then you come to today and the horsepower that these cars have and, and the speeds are capable of. I read about a Bugatti that um, is the fastest street production car now 304 miles an hour mm -hmm. wow. 304 street car wow well yeah. street car yeah. hey well, it's fe know. it's feasible I, it's it's yeah. feasible right okay your advice as we wrap up here your advice for a young man you know you've seen chase come up through the field you saw um you know the beginning with uh with casey Elliott, and uh how, how did what would your advice be nowadays as far as, excuse me, getting into racing or... How do you get into racing when there's no short tracks anymore? That's just it. The, the, the ability Local to do tracks. that, because NASCAR, that was one of the things that was in some of their, um, some of what was released today was the fact that their new car makes it easier for anyone to come in and compete in the NASCAR. And no, I, I disagree. You, you, to start, um, the lowest level in NASCAR is still what, K&N? Right. K&N would, would still be your entry mm -hmm. level. That would not be cheap. No, gosh, no. 
okay? And by the time that you're of age to come into K&N, you should already be in a truck or an Xfinity car and maybe even into a cup car. The ability to come in at an early age has, has really changed a lot. Think eye racing and stuff has affected that? I think just the fact that NASCAR wants you to go through their levels. They want you to start in K&N and work up through the levels. I think that um, eye racing has definitely changed a lot, but it's definitely the cheapest way to race. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have a rack, you push Depending the on what you say on the radio. <laughs> just don't go on the internet part of it. But um, to anyone coming up, if if you have the ability and you have the resources, and there's where it's at, and having the resources, the ability to get the sponsorship, to be able to put together the money it would take to do a sponsorship, you you have to have that finance and pretty well secure to do that. Either that or like us, whenever it, it to, to me in in our beginning of the, of the of the deal was grace of God for sure because the story is for me and and it's a true story is that it's all a series of stepping stones and if any one of those stones were missing you would not be where you are today because it's just like the Penske car the first car that we bought that was a a good race car was the car bought from Roger Penske and that was seventy seven. Well, Mother didn't care for the racing stuff much, but Mother sold property to get the money to buy that car and the parts that we got. Okay, so even though Mother didn't care much for the racing part of it, that's how much you have to be supported by everyone around you. You have to have that support. You have to have that network to be able to succeed and today is is even more imperative that you have that network and and believing in yourself and that that, that you can do this and and the intestinal fortitude to carry it through at whatever cost it's going to i've seen people spend everything and come out the other end with basically about nothing about nothing mm-hmm. yeah. And you can't forget those along the way any more than you can forget the history along the way that no, but they are they are usually forgotten about. But you should not, you should not, because they're the ones that pave the way for you to get where you are. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like mother and daddy when you started out on the deal. You know, you you definitely wouldn't be here if it wasn't for mother and daddy. You wouldn't you would not be where you're at today. That's right. That's right. And it and and like I say, mother and daddy came from nothing as far as they they came from nothing, because when growing up, I I know the pictures and stuff, and I've I've seen all the stuff, and I know from how mother and daddy, when when mother passed away, I went down to the basement. We had a little basement, and it leaked. It it had been a good swimming pool because it was <laughs> wetter than it was, and it stayed mildewed. I don't know how we kept from dying, but went down to the basement after she passed away, and the whole wall was covered in bread bags and milk jugs, mm-hmm. and they're tied on a string and hanging on the wall, and somebody said, well, why did your mother save them? I said, did you live through the Depression? There you go. 
Mm-hmm. I said, they had nothing. I said, they had nothing. And I said, mother and daddy scrimped and saved. And I said, I got a double dose of, I save everything. I, I got a double dose of, <laughs> I, I, it, it's not, and, and, and that's the thing about it. They've labeled all of these as hoarders. You got to go back and examine how you do this and and why you do this, because it isn't. And and I say that I I keep a lot of my stuff because I I'm a tinkerer. I love to tinker with things. I love to weld things together. I love to do things. I love to make things. And without scrap pieces laying around, you know, a lot of times now, people have made a profession out of making trophies out mm-hmm. of junk. Out of junk, right. Mm-hmm. Okay. You got to start. You got you got to start somewhere. You got to do something somewhere. Now, you promised to sell me half a bucket of brackets that you just bought. Yeah. That's yeah. the kind of stuff that, yeah. you know, if you're building stuff, if you're building it's stuff, already made. You it's don't have already made. That's it. exactly yeah. right. And that stuff was going into the metal dumpster which is now about 10 cents a pound. Yeah. Okay, the brackets, if, if you wanted to make that bracket by the time you bought a piece of steel, bend it and drill the holes in it, you're a couple of bucks at best and like me, Band-Aids on all the fingers. You've got time and money and sweat or blood equity in it. So yeah, and, and I hate to see this stuff being thrown away because I lived a lot of years in the beginning because we started out the same way. We didn't have anything. Right. And I started out the same way and all of the all of the oil filters we used on the on the dyno, we would drop the oil and change the filters every time you run an engine. So you were probably forty 40 race motors a year and then probably forty qualifying motors. So I ended up with probably about 200 oil filters that I'm still using. And just because they ran on the dyno for an hour, if the engine blew up, yeah, I'd throw them away. <laughs> but if the engine if the engine went through its breakthrough cycle and, and three pulls on the dyno, yeah, I'm saving that. Yeah, drain the oil out and, and, and put thank, them back in the box. And thank God that most of the stuff that, that I own today is still uses that same FL1 filter. <laughs> it, it's amazing. But I, I, I told somebody a long time ago I could live off the waste. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. that's the way of a lot of businesses. But business today, I've got to be leaner and meaner. Absolutely. But, but having that to be able to put up and, and thinking about that at that time was... Um, pretty incredible to me because I, I the big joke with my son is 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 I'll ask him how something how old something is and he'll always say older than I am and, and I'll say yeah because everything I own is older than you, older are. Than you are well this is never going to get old can we uh get you to come back sometime yeah Mr. Dan Elliott here at Bud's Garage Bud's Garage Overdrive the podcast it, it has been a privilege to have you it's been a privilege to, thank you, know, you for having show. me privilege Enjoyed to it. know you privilege to work with you and a privilege to call you friend and uh this amen because time. we're in a for uh, a uh we're in a um we're both blood brothers in this deal of um having the chest opened up aren't we yeah we'll compare we'll compare scars after the after the show i don't i don't, I don't even want to think That'll about be it on youtube all right <laughs> not <laughs> Thank you so much, and uh, look forward to having you back again. 
Thank you. Thanks, Dan. So for sure, Dan Elliott has and always be has been. <clears throat> Try it again. So for sure, Dan Elliott is and always has been a Ford guy. Mm -hmm. So he might be very interested in what Concept One has designed for the FE engines, the Ford FE engines, which was the big block that came after the Y block. Okay. And, so this uh, would have been late 50s, early 60s? Yeah, roundish in there. It's mm -hmm. when we were having all the uh, NASCAR wars between the, the 426 Hemi, the 427 Chevy, 427 Fords, before they you know, did what they have now where you have kind of a you know, cubic inch limit right. uh, across the board. And uh, anyway, Concept One, we've talked about them in the first two podcasts. They're right here in Cumming, Georgia. Mm -hmm. It is a family business. It started out, the, the guys, it was, it's Kevin and Randy and their dad, Daryl. They started out um, restoring Corvettes, and then one thing morphed into another. They became students at Lanier Technical College because they wanted to build a business. Okay. They started out by doing this pulley system thing. Now, they design, build them, and do everything in-house, and then they package it up and send it to you. So when you're working with them, you might be a couple weeks out on a system because they want to know what you're building, how you're building it, and what it's going right. in to get you the right deal. But anyway, you can take a Ford FE, which is a, a popular engine, and you can start out by getting a pulley system with just the alternator if you don't want all the other jazz. Mm -hmm. You know, that gives you the water pump pulley, all the brackets, uh, the alternator. And you can get it in different finishes. You can get it in machine finish, polish finish. I think I misspoke last week and talked about chrome. There's no chrome going on. It is polished. It is machined. It's anodized clear or it's uh, anodized black. Okay. That you can get systems in. And then you can get, you know, you can get uh, jazzed up alternators. You can get a chrome alternator if you want. Yeah. And, and that type of stuff. But the pulley systems and the bracketry and everything they make, mm -hmm. that is all machine stuff. Okay. But you can get a kit for the alternator, with just an FE kit with an alternator, uh, for eight twenty-five. Wow! That's for all that stuff, instead of scrounging for brackets in the junkyard and all that kind oh, of stuff, right. you can get an alternator and AC kit for sixteen forty-five. Mm -hmm. And they have a lot of options as far as you know what you, what you're trying to do with this besides finishes. When you get into the power steering system, which is a uh, alternator and power steering without air conditioning, if mm -hmm. you're building that kind of car, you can get into what types of reservoirs are available for the power steering. You can get into how much pressure you want to use. And that's another thing with the alternators. You can get into what amperage you want to use. You can switch that stuff up. And that's why you need to call them and get the exact system you're looking for. Wow. And, uh, so the Mac Daddy is the Ford FE kit with the alternator, AC, and power steering for just over two grand. Yeah, that's a deal. It's a deal. It comes with the accessories. You can call right. and talk to the people that are machining this stuff, mm -hmm. and they're great folks to deal with. Uh, check them out at Concept One to see all the things they have going for you, and uh, they give the numbers and everything so you can talk to a human being. Oh, man. What a concept. Perfect reaction time. So here we go. You know, we've talked about talking with Dan Elliott. Dan had so many good things to share with us about back in the day. We're mm -hmm. talking about back in the late 70s going into the 80s, uh, you know, overthinking things, working hard. You know, they were showing up at the track with a dozen people. Nowadays, these teams will show up with, you know, 100 people. Right. Engineers and stuff and all, all sorts of people show up at the track and the transporters and that. It's a different sport than it used to be. 
And I, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to Dan many times, uh, you know, we'd go have lunch or whatever. And, and, you know, he said it would be so tough to get back in, you know, get into race, not back into racing. To or get to into get racing. into it, to get your foot in the door yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. You don't have, no one has the money. For no. you got to have the most fascinating part of Dan's story. You know, speaking of evolving and the way things evolve in the automotive industry, when he said he realized that if he polished all of the internal components of the engine, Correct. that he could turn more RPMs and it would run stronger, smoother, faster. And that it just blew me away. And it just goes to show how racing uh, evolves into what happens on the street and in the mainstream. Well, in the manufacturing. Right, you exactly. Know, they, uh, uh, we, we were talking about the FE engines. You know, they came out with cross-drilled uh, blocks at that point in time. They had, they had four-bolt mains, but they weren't four-bolt mains like having a Chevrolet. They were, they were coming in the, the, uh, every other main, like it was main two and main four mm-hmm. on some of the FE blocks, were side-bolted. So you had two bolts going down through the main cap, which were huge mains anyway, and then mm-hmm. they came in and, you know, put the bolts in from the side they, because it, it was a long-skirted block. Okay. And, you know, all that stuff is transferred over into manufacturing. Now, if you take a four-cylinder apart, it's got a long-skirted block, and the block also becomes like a main uh, main bearing girdle, if you will, mm-hmm. that is an aftermarket thing you can bolt onto, a, you know, an engine that doesn't have those... those uh, characteristics so it's it's very interesting stuff yes it is. i thought hey, i thought i thought so too well you know if you're restoring a classic muscle car yeah and you're looking for parts mm-hmm. where are you gonna go well you're gonna go to our friends uh, the muscle car experts at year one who provide our podcast yes they do well they provide our podcast for the radio program mm-hmm. which is on terrestrial radio that would be bud's garage it's featured on am 515 fm 102.9 and live streamed, and it is also on a app called Access WDUN. You can put on your phone and listen to Bud's Garage, the radio show, and now you can get that on Spotify and all your normal podcast places. In addition to this podcast that we're presently doing, which is Bud's Garage Overdrive, and next week Bud's Garage Overdrive will feature uh, current automotive technology uh, trends plus a visit from Rick Humphrey, and Rick is the president of Michelin Raceway Road Atlanta. He's got some interesting things to say, and it's, it's interesting what his background is and what he does on a daily basis. And I, I think you're going to thoroughly enjoy it. Oh, yeah. So until then, remember to keep between the ditches, shiny side up. We'll see you next week right here on Bud's Garage Overdrive, the podcast. Okay. Have a great week. Have a great week.